Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Welcome back to the Rise of the Young podcast. On today's episode, we have Aristotle Loomis here with us. Aristotle Loomis is the co-founder of Hello Philo, as well as the founder of Where Ellison. Not only did he sell his company to billionaire Marcus Limonis, but he bought it back. And we're going to be diving into that story on this podcast. But that being said, Hello Philo has raised over $18 million and they are conquering the cannabis industry. So that being said, make sure you share this episode with a friend, screenshot this, put it on your Instagram story, tag Aristotle, tag myself, and enjoy the episode. All right, what is going on, everyone? Casey Adams here. Welcome back to the Rise of the Young podcast. Today, we have Aristotle Loomis, the co-founder of Philo. Thanks so much for coming on, man. Thanks for having me, man. I wish we could be doing it in Arizona, enjoying the sun. <laughs> I know, uh, right? Well, well, first off, I want to give a big shout out to my man, AJ Ramsa, for, for connecting us quite some time ago. And um, he put us in touch. And I definitely appreciate you coming on today, man. Your story is absolutely incredible. And I'd love for you to give the audience some insight into what you're currently building when it comes to Philo. Yeah. So, you know, obviously shout out to the Chicago kid himself, AJ. I always, you know, anybody that connects uh, a friend of his is a friend of mine. So great to uh, be connecting with you and seeing all the great things you're doing. Um, as it relates to Philo, uh, I, I suppose the, the 30,000 30, foot um, uh, explanation of kind of the origins and what we're doing and, and how we see ourselves in the market is we're effectively creating the largest database and regulation technology uh, for highly regulated markets. And so we were born to solve the issues facing the cannabis market, but very quickly learning that many other industries, whether it's autonomous driving, whether it's um, pharmaceuticals, uh, micromobility, they all s- suffer uh, from the same type of regulatory constraints. And so what we've come to learn in our journey, in our, in our, in our one-year journey, we had our first birthday last week, is that our solution could be a solution for many industries, not just one. Love that. I'd love for you to take us back because I know your, your story as an entrepreneur, you've, you've started and sold multiple businesses. Where did this entrepreneur drive come from at an early age? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, the, the, way I like to, the way I like to share my story is by sharing my family story. And so like most immigrant families, I come from a single mother, eight children, Chicago. Um, Grew up in Chicago, then moved a little bit more on the northern side as I got older. Um, but 
when you have seven brothers, I mean, you're kind of an entrepreneur to begin with, right? And uh, experiencing those hurdles from a single mother, uh, you got creative. And so, you know, we did the typical, you know, landscaping. Uh, you know, I, I was actually, one of my first endeavors was I was a local neighborhood pooper scooper. And so I used to go around. And what I realized soon on is, you know, when parents typically get a, a pet for their children, it's supposed to be the thing that teaches them responsibility. But what they soon realize is that they are the one picking up the after the dogs and they're the yeah. one taking care of it and they're the ones doing these things. And I recognized early on my friends were always getting in trouble because they didn't meet the, the chores or the responsibilities granted to them by their parents. And so I found an opportunity and I said, listen, I don't want my buddy AJ in case you're getting grounded all the time. How about if I go pick up the dog poop or go do this or change the calendar or do these chores? And so I brokered a deal with one house and I was able to establish a $7 every time I did the, the, the front yard cleanup. Uh, and I did that with 40 different houses. So very early on at about 10 years old, I was generating about 500 to a thousand a week. Um, you know, that was going to support yeah. me and my family and things of that nature. Uh, but you know, that elevated like most immigrant families. I had two choices growing up. Uh, I was either a doctor or a lawyer. Um, now you could be an engineer. Uh, but, uh, you know, I went down the medical path. And so went into college when I was 16 years old. But things didn't really take a turn until I met my father for the first time in Greece at 18 years old. Um, and so that was the first time in an airplane, first time seeing uh, my cult, they introduced my culture, first time seeing the ocean. So you could imagine uh, how impactful that was for a young adolescent. Uh, and first time meeting my father. And so you could imagine how that impacted me. Yep. And uh, dating it, it was uh, 2008. So you could imagine I met my father 18, 2008. Uh, and this was the midst of the not only US uh, depression, if you will, modern depression, a recession, it was uh, Greece. Um, and for those that are a little bit older than you would rec recognize and probably remember how, uh, in, how Greece was impacted and majority of Europe was impacted from yeah. uh, things that transpired in the US. And so my father is a very successful entrepreneur out there. And you know, I had just met him. And so Long story short, I was able to fall in love uh, with business by meeting my father. Um, and that was the thing that kind of connected us and ultimately built that father-son relationship. And so at a high level, you know, very traditional, you know, kind of story of the immigrant family growing up, but it took a turn and I got hit by the entrepreneurial bug more formally uh, when I was 18, when I met my father in Greece. Got it. What was the transition from, you know, finding that entrepreneurial bug to then starting Ellison. I know that was Ellison Eyewear is a company you were a part of and sold. And there's a, there's a lot of depth that goes into that. But when did you start Ellison? Because I've seen that everywhere. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of, a great question is like, you know, how did you get into eyewear, right? You don't just wake yeah. up and think sunglasses. And so, you know, when I was going to Greece, you know, and this is a very American thing is, you know, we, I went to a country that I've never been to on a first airplane. So you, as again, as you can imagine, it was very impactful. And I met my father and, and you're seeing kind of what we're dealing now with this pandemic, high unemployment rates, people are kind of victimizing. Well, it's different in the U.S. The U.S. doesn't really play victim. We're very American in the way that we, uh, you know, uh, pride ourselves in, in, our, in our neighbors and in our community. But Greece and Europe, you know, it, it, they had a different mentality that has now completely eradicated. I'm incredibly proud. But at that time, it was a little bit more of a victim mentality like this is happening to us and um, they didn't really take it as an opportunity to 
uh, innovate, right? And I, mm-hmm. I, I truly believe that in moments of crisis, that is the moment uh, that is the moment of most opportunity. And so I come from the America, America was born and raised, and so I kind of have this ingrained in me. And so as I met my father and built that relationship, I was more introduced to the Greece. I started thinking, okay, first I was I was uh, attending university. I was going for dentistry, and so I kind of had a timeline, right? I met him at eighteen, the same year. Uh, I went to college when I was 16, transferred to University of Iowa at 18, and I was pursuing dentistry. And so I knew I had four years kind of to make up my mind because once you go and, you know, get, get accepted to dentistry, dental school, you're in debt, you're becoming a dentist. You don't really kind of back out of that. Yep. And so it wasn't until my senior year, so about three years after meeting my father, being exposed to Greece, you know, being close to him, developing that relationship, I always thought to myself, like, I want to be an entrepreneur, but I don't know what, like most entrepreneurs, right? Everybody yeah. wants to be one, but they don't have that aha moment. And so I started thinking, what are the three things that motivated me? What are the th- three things that I could get behind? And the three things that motivated me was uh, being close to my father, right? He was absent my whole life. He's an older guy. He had just experienced a couple of heart attacks within that three years. And I said, one thing I always regret is not having built that relationship with my father in the event that something happened. So that was motivation one. Motivation two is culture. I fell in love with the Greek culture. I fell in love. I always say I found myself when I found my culture. So it was something that I just got addicted to. I wanted to learn more about it. I wanted to be closer there. Um, and the third one was travel. I you know, didn't have much money growing up. I didn't really, like I said, first time in an airplane at 18. And so it was something that I said, wow, my mind completely changed overnight having experienced that. And I wanted more of that. And so with those three things, I started saying, okay, what can accomplish that? And so my senior year, high level again of college, you know, starting to take the DATs, entrance exams to dental school, I basically came up with this concept that was, and this is the time of Warby Parker, time of Tom Shoes. So this one for one model was very, very, it was uh, very popular, very innovative, very disruptive, especially in the CPG category. And so long story short, I uh, went back to those three factors and I said, okay, these are my motivators. Now, what is a product and a concept? And so I looked at Greece and I, I thought, I was like, how are all these people so stressed and the economy's dying? I was like, you could literally sell anything here. I was like, you could go put sand in a bag, say made in Greece and sell that, you know, and people yeah. would buy because the way that the Greeks and the Europeans were thinking about the way that they were viewed versus the way that actually the world was viewing them. You know, when you think of Greece at the time in 2008, you didn't think of financial crisis. You thought, okay, Mykonos, Santorini, beautiful yeah. girls, guys, party, you know, very like a vacation. You're not thinking of all this, what the, you know, what uh, CNBC uh, stock market <laughs> shows are saying. And so um, I knew that there was a brandable opportunity, but I didn't know what to brand, if you will. And so yeah. I said, what is something that I use every day in Greece? And so when you leave your office or when you leave your house, you have your cigarettes, your sandals, and your sunglasses, right? And it's just kind of the European lifestyle. And so yes. what I found myself doing was I kept seeing, finding myself back buying new eyewear or sunglasses. And every time I went to, in Greek, we call it the Priptoro, so it's a little kiosk, yep. kind of like the New York kiosks. And uh, there's obviously the shops and whatnot, but I always find myself at either the Priptoro buying the $10, $5, you know, wood throwaways, or going to the more um, local malls or shops, boutiques, and finding and seeing the stuff that I saw in America, Oakley, Chanel, Prada, Gucci. And I said, why isn't there like a, you know, it'd be very cool in this, when you're Greek, you always, you're always gifting, right? So I'm always bringing back yeah. gifts and stuff. I said, it'd be cool to have a handmade product. And I just never saw it. And so 
I always found myself buying and repurchasing eyewear. And so long story short, I said, why don't we, why is the sunniest place on earth, the Miami of the world, 365 sunlight, 3,500 islands, known for the beaches and the sun and this elegance, why don't we make sunglasses? And I couldn't mm. find it. And essentially that's how the initial concept was born. Wow. So when you started Ellison, because I want to make sure we talk about Philo as well. When you started Ellison, what was that journey like from starting to acquisition? Yeah, so, you know, so 2008 met my father. 2011 dropped out, started Ellison, at least the idea, ideation of it. Uh, so I was about 21 years old, right? So senior year in college. Uh, so I had this idea. I said, great. I think I'm, I'm motivated about something. I think yeah. I'm onto something. I said, okay, manufacturing. Learn very quickly that there is no manufacturing infrastructure in Greece. Like there is no eyewear company. It was all made in Italy, which everybody knows, you know, with all the major manufacturers or made in China. And yeah. so I did exactly what every uh, novice entrepreneur in the manufacturing world, I manufactured in China and I learned very quickly. So there was a little kind of the stories will be mixed. I, I, I knew I wanted a Greece, but I couldn't do it. So I said, maybe I'll brand a Greek theme and do certain things to kind of, you know, tie in Greek, but it had to be made in China because there was no infrastructure. Spent my whole entire life savings. Um, you know, as a bartender, I didn't have money. So by whatever I was able to gather together, um, $20,000 on an order from China. And as most Chinese manufacturers, now it's different with Alibaba and Skype and, and all these different ways to connect yeah. with the manufacturer. Back then, it was a phone call. And if you couldn't get them on the phone call and you didn't have trust with that manufacturer, that you're sending money basically to a black hole and you don't know what you're going to get in return. And so that's exactly what happened. I didn't understand what I was doing. I jumped right in and uh, I basically sent everything I had in this order and it basically came back and it was all messed up. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting there with all this inventory that's just garbage that I can't sell, that was not at all anything that I uh, uh, ordered. And, you know, of course, you could try calling China, beep, beep, you know, phones off. So what are you going to send the Chinese police after them? You can't do anything, right? And so it was a hard first lesson. Basically, my dream was crushed. Um, but I took an opportunity then and say, listen, I could either use this as an opportunity. Why did I fail? And what could I do moving forward? And so I knew I failed because I jumped into it. I had no idea about the space. I had no idea about manufacturing. I had no idea about fashion or product or anything of the sort, international trade. And, and, and that mistake was a costly mistake, but it, it was well-deserved because I jumped in and I was arrogant. And so yeah. I took that opportunity to actually say, I'm going to do this right. And so that's when I actually dropped out of college and I moved to Greece. And I said, I'm going to build it and I'm going to build it right. So I found two partners. We went to Milan, bought an old factory making some of the brands that you know today, yep. brought the manufacturing plant to Greece and I moved to Greece and I lived there for about three years learning how to make sunglasses, like actually from scratch. Yeah. And so from 2000, it's 2008, met my father, 2011, basically had this aha moment said I'm going to do this, dropped out, moved to Greece until 2014. 2014, we officially launched Ellison Eyewear. Um, the first ever Greek handmade hour production. Um, I basically hustled. Um, and while I figured out everything, manufacturing and this, supply chain, the brand, the everything, it was everything that you could ever imagine. One thing I didn't figure out was distribution. And, and, and so I basically moved back to Chicago and I re recognized really quickly. And then we launched in July 28th, 2014, which is summer. And then as you know, in Chicago, winter comes in August. And yeah, so yeah. right into winter, owning a sunglass company uh, with no distribution. And so yeah. for about three or four years, I literally sold them. You go to my Instagram, A-L-O-U-M-I-S, you'll find kind of those uh, his historical snippets. But I basically 
in many cases, lived out of my car, selling these one by one out of the back of my car. And so I traveled around the country five times. I went to over 200 states if you add them all together wow. and repeat twice. And I sold basically anywhere I could. And it wasn't until 2018, so now almost eight, nine years after I started this, um, I was about to throw in the towel. I had exerted myself. I just got engaged. I said, I need a, you know, this goes more of the mental health of the entrepreneur. How much more can I give? And um, I ended up uh, basically getting into a store called Marcus, owned by billionaire Marcus Limonis. And by the grace of God, I ended up getting that store sold out. We got into two stores, sold out very quickly, and then very quickly turned into their best performing uh, uh, accessory item across all 30 of their stores. Started an exclusive partnership. This was all in like two months, very wow. quickly, practically overnight. And that success from that one account led to an investment conversation from you know the president at the time who then went up to Marcus. And basically they said, listen, we know your product sells. <laughs> it's one of our best performing items. We want to know a little bit about the man behind the, 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 the company. And I told them the same story I'm telling you now. And they said, wow. And they heard all that backstory. And they said, listen, we want to get involved in a larger capacity at one contingency. I was like, what? And they're like, you have to go on the show and tell that story to the world. And so I ended up going on the show uh, in 2017 uh, and late 2017, early 2018, he ended, Marcus ended up acquiring the company. Um, the uh, Marcus Simonis Fashion Group ended up acquiring Ellison um, in early 2018. And then my role elevated to the president of the CPG portfolio, uh, wow. more specifically the eyewear portfolio. And uh, I was his partner for about two years. And then I had an opportunity to, as with most acquisitions, uh, you're usually tied to one to three year commitment, sometimes more, sometimes less. And so I met the commitment. Him and I had a very fatherly son conversation. And he basically gave me an opportunity. I say, Marcus gave me two opportunities I couldn't refuse, two, two offers I couldn't refuse. The first to buy my company, second for me to buy back. And so I ended up by striking a deal with him to buy it back. And as of uh, three months ago, I ended up reselling it. Uh, wow. to the founder of Potbelly, which is like a very, it's like a Jimmy John's well-known um, sandwich uh, franchise yeah. model. But in that time of buying it back, again, back to the entrepreneurial side of things, I said, well, I bought the company back, but it, you know, I had now gotten engaged and have a house and all these you know, expenses that I didn't have when I was living you know, basically as an entrepreneur, couch to couch, car by car. Um, and so I had to support myself. I couldn't just not take a salary. And through that need, Philo was born. Of course, there was a lot more to that, yep. but basically I was in a crossroads as was my two co-founders. And so we found another industry with a major need. Um, and, and the way that translated is because when I ran the portfolio, it was about a hundred, $150 million portfolio. The biggest issue we faced was marketing, right? It was very complicated. You never know these agencies or internal teams, all, you know, just from my perspective, which at the time I didn't have much marketing knowledge. I was more of a hands-on you know, deal guy, manufacturing, supply chain, you know, yeah. all that stuff. But marketing was, you know, it's, it's a specific, it's like you, it's a specific talent and you have to earn it or you have to own that craft like you do anything else. But I always saw it as a business owner, as one of my business expenses that I couldn't really quantify or track. All I know is that I would send, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a quarter on marketing, yet the results didn't really add up. And so I always got frustrated that I didn't understand that industry enough. And so I said, okay, marketing is hard in general for the traditional market. Imagine if you add it to the cannabis market when it's riddled with all these regulation issues. Yeah. So not only can you market, but it's also confined by all these um, regulation barriers. And so we knew that if we could create a product to kind of 
unweb all that uh, and drive the value in terms of great marketers, which is what my co-founders are, technology and a marketer. Um, and then me being a CPG guy, knowing what our actual clients, you know, we make, you know, product, right? Yeah. We're product guys. So we know, I know their, their pains and I know that, you know, all these cannabis products, you know, you can either go and sell them on a $20,000 digital campaign or yeah. they're going to, or they're going to do $20,000 in seeds. They're always going to pick the seeds yep. because they know that they could grow it. They could harvest it. They could sell it. Whereas the market, there's all these question marks. Right. And so we wanted to make sure that I could speak to them in a way that they understood, not these very complicated, you know, pitches, if you will. Um, and then make sure I had my partners there to execute on it. So it made it for a perfect, uh, perfect formula for success. Yeah. So when you guys started Philo, just the regarding the cannabis industry, where do you see that going moving into 2020 just with widespread adoption and legalization? Yeah, so I think, you know, this is a blessing and a curse, and we're one of the very few to maybe, um, not necessarily benefit, but it, it, it's going to change the dynamic and the environment in which we operate. And so, you know, two months ago, you ask anybody, if the cannabis, they would say, yeah, it's emerging, it's hot, you know, yeah. a lot of people are getting into it. And you ask them now, they're like, it's essential. Right. You know, depending on who you ask, it might be as essential as milk and eggs, right? Yep. Because if you have anxiety or depression or this or that, you know, it really is a medicine, right? So many people view it as that, but just hop up just for the everyday guy or girl or what have you that just needs to fight off the anxiety of having to stay inside. Right. <laughs> and so what better friend to, 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 to go puff and Netflix than it is to cannabis, a blunt. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And so, the way that it's changed for us is that it has become more uh, destigmatized, and it's not as it's becoming more uh, widely acceptable. And we see that our numbers are up, our clients are doing better, um, and so I I, I I confidently think that um, in the next six months, possibly around the time of uh, re-election, that we could possibly see a, a federal uh, legalization. Got it. Very interesting. When it comes to just the software behind Philo and oh, actually I want to, I want to pivot this because I know we had a conversation about your um, campaign. What do they call it? Your crowdfunding campaign. That was phenomenal. Oh, yeah. I'd love for you to touch on crowdfunding and what you did in that space. Did you watch it? Yes. It was so great. The video, I'll make sure to link it down below. Yeah. So, you know, again, going back to, and I think that you and I were really connected. I am not the guy that comes from, uh, you know, I was not raised in an affluent family. My mother was a physician, spoke some languages, but you know, like most immigrant families, she yep. was all about the family and making sure we were raised right. So hard work, education were big. And while we had those things, we didn't have that long line of rich uncles and, and yep. things that could just, you know, people that could just throw money. And so I had to get really creative. And, and while I am, you know, while I had my challenges, I'm still a white male. And so that gives me a lot of advantages in the end. And so imagine if I was, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, African-American lady from Iowa, right. And I'm still geographically in a place where things happen, uh, not as much as the coast, of course, so in, in New York or California, but I'm a white male from Chicago. And so there's enough going on there where I can leverage it. And that's exactly what I did, but I still dealt with the barriers uh, associated with um, founders who have great ideas who are extremely qualified but just don't have the resources and Got so it. the argument that that entrepreneurial entrepreneurship is an equal playing sport is actually not true it's actually not very 
fair. Um, again, going back to the notion that if you live in New York and you're a white male or live in New York and you're, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the West Coast and, 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 and a white male, you are disproportionately more likely to get funded and to grow and to succeed than you are if you are an African-American lady from Iowa, a uh, Spanish from Minnesota, or a Greek from Chicago. It just that's the way the numbers work out. And so... I painstakingly sold and did everything I could bartended. So I, the, the, the weeds I didn't tell you guys about were, you know, I had to work three jobs and I was constantly funding my own stuff. Um, but I, I always found challenges in raising the necessary capital in order to grow. And so I did it very painstakingly over a course of eight years. And one of the things that changed was in 2014, uh, don't quote me on this, but 2014 and 2016, the Jobs Act was enacted and basically allowed anybody from any background to invest in uh, startups versus the, what was prior, which is the accredited investor. So you needed to have a threshold of 100, 150 in value, all these assets, and you were allowed to basically participate in the Ubers of the world, right? I'll give you one example. What was the one VR Oculus, right? So I'll give you an example about Kickstarter and why this ultimately translated. Oculus, Oculus was founded um, on Kickstarter, right? I think they raised like $3 million in pre-orders. Then a year later, they were able to, you know, grow substantially. And I think within like one to two years, they, they sold for one to 10 billion. I forgot the actual number, but I think it was a billion. And the people that actually sold or participated were the Kickstarter people. They were the people that contributed the 100 to 200. They ended up, you know, contributing to what ultimately became the success and the momentum that ultimately led to the billion-dollar acquisition. Now, the people that were supported early on were never thanked or rewarded for them supporting Oculus. You know, who won were the two white uh, founders that are from the coast. They yep. you know, exited a billion. And where did that billion go? It stayed in West Coast, right? Whereas, how about if everybody had $200 worth of equity in Oculus you know, uh, you know, initially and then sold for a billion two years later? those people would have gotten $50,000 checks, 50 to $100,000 checks. Now, what do you think what would happen if you're that same example, the Greek from Chicago, the Spanish person from Minnesota, the African-American from Iowa, what do you think if you were to got that $50,000 check, what you would do? What we'll likely do is you'd be like, wow, investing is real. Yeah. I took a chance. And you likely invest in another company. You would start your own company. And this is how you actually uh, uh, you know, dis uh, disperse opportunity because the reason why it isn't is because the winners are winning and they're on the coast. And so what we have to do is disperse it. And so the Jobs Act was actually the first brick in that movement. And so Jobs Act enacted that allowed anybody from any background to invest. However, this is a sticking point. Now, okay, great. Minnesota guy, Chicago guy, uh, girl from Iowa, you can invest in these startups. But the instrument and the, and the infrastructure to support those type of investments wasn't there. For example, you come up with uh, the podcast, I want to throw some money at you, but I'm your best friend from high school and I only have 500 bucks. You're like, great. Let's get it on paper. Let's get you involved. Okay. You get the lawyers on the phone. You do this, you do that. A $500,000 investment actually costs 2000 in legal fees. Right. And so the only one winning in that transaction are the lawyers, right? Because you need to have protection and you have instruments and you need to treat it like a real investment. So there's all these different things that you have to consider. Um, and so what was changed in 2016 is that uh, was called a, I forgot the act, but it was some act that basically allowed online portals to, uh, to efficientize this transaction. And so 
Um, and what was born from Y Combinator was called the SAFE Agreement, which was a simple agreement for future equity. It was a one pager, it protected you, it protected an investor, and it allowed for this seamless transaction. And so how do you transact? And then that's when they created the opportunity for companies or platforms like a Kickstarter, like an Indiegogo, to actually start offering equity campaigns. Um, and that's exactly what it is, right? So there's debt crowdfunding, there's uh, gift uh, or donation crowdfunding, GoFundMe. There's yeah. the Kickstarters, which are the uh, uh, pre-product, pre-buy kind of uh, uh, crowdfunding. And then there's equity crowdfunding. And so I ended up getting a platform called Republic. Dot co and why that's different from some of the other ones is that it's highly vetted and you have to have a lot of credentials to get in and it actually was started by a the general counsel of angels list and angels list is the largest community of investors in the world and it was the gc that left and started a subsidiary called republic highly vetted highly credible and what happens when you get accepted the value add is when you get accepted, you are then exposed to that huge network of investors. Wow. And so I was able to go, I was actually the second or third person to go on to it. Wow. And imagine being in 2016, it's equivalent to me saying I was the second or third person on Kickstarter. So yeah. I went into this new thing, trying this new way of raising capital, but I had no choice. I was like, anybody willing to write a check or to do this? I've literally yeah. raised any way you can because I needed to and I needed to keep the thing going. And so ended up going on to it. And uh, raised about a quarter million dollars. Uh, it became the fastest funded equity crowdfunding campaign in the country. Um, and then uh, one of the largest early on. And so it was an amazing experience. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more to it in terms of what, what to do to make it successful. Uh, but it was a great experience. And it just shows you know, that anybody with a great idea from any background has an opportunity to raise capital. And so it was a great experience. And uh, for anybody that's starting off something, you know, as you consider starting a business, you have to look at all options and this is a great option to consider. Love that. I appreciate the, the thorough breakdown for sure. I, I have two more quick questions before we wrap up. One being, you know, the first time we talked last week, just catching up, I learned so much from you in this short period of time and I'm sure the listeners are learning as well. But if you were to look back on your journey through raising capital and starting and growing and selling a company, what advice would you give to a young entrepreneur that's taking that first step in starting a company? So it's just some context of how, you know, hustling, coming from similar background and challenges and adversities I dealt with, raising capital, you know, doing equity crowdfunding. I raised about $1.5 million before the crowdfunding and then the acquisition with Marcus, all that jazz. So you could think about it over about $2 million from that experience. And then when Philo, you know, one thing we didn't address is that we raised within a year, we had our first birthday, we raised $18 million in the first nine months. Yep. And so this goes to show you, once you understand the game and your options and you, and you leverage those tools, how you could drive it in your next endeavor. Um, and that's exactly what I did, right? People are like, how did you break records? How did you raise all this capital? And it was basically an idea on a notepad. It was nothing more, right? Like most companies, but it was the narrative. It was a story. It was a conviction and it was a structure um, that allowed me to get there. And so with all that said, I think the biggest thing that, you know, it's something that Marcus says all the time, people, product, and process. And so really fall in love with the process. I think, excuse me, I think one of the challenges I faced early on is even myself, like most entrepreneurs, I'm, I'm a, I victimize myself. Like I don't have this and I don't have that person. I don't have that network and, you know, whatever, whatever. And, and, and one thing I did, I had my moments of vulnerability, but one thing I did do, and it's just something that was ingrained in me as a child is I fell in love with the process. And I just fell in love with, 
how to put a contract together or how to pay my taxes or how to actually run the company, um, things that were not as front facing. And because I did those things, I become obsessed with them. And because I didn't have the money to outsource it, I understood, you know, everything I possibly could about the economics of a business that ultimately held, you know, helped me in the long term when I started Philo and ultimately that to the exit and things of that nature. So I think as a young entrepreneur and the things I told you is do as much as you possibly can yourself, you know, even if it's hard, even if you're not experienced as much as you can yourself, because not only are you going to maintain control of your company, you're going to have more confidence in what you're doing. And this is going to allow you for more clarity as you move forward because you can make decisions no one's ever going to work as hard as you do 20 hours a day working on your baby and so if you have to be uh dependent on an accountant or a lawyer or a marketer right whatever it is and the more you can arm yourself with that ammo and that skill set the more you're gonna be able to move faster and make those decisions and make them confidently and what i like to say is when you build out a team whether it's your marketing team or your legal team or your operations team the more that you could speak their language, the more they're going to do, the more you're going to know. And, and it allows for further growth because if you live in a world of, uh, not confusion, but if you don't understand the process, how can you guide the process? Yeah. Right. And so if you can at least understand 30%, no one's telling you to go become an accountant or a yeah. lawyer or whatever. And things I say and feel all the time, I could get us about 70% there on our accounting and our lawyer and, and our legal, but I'm not an accountant. And I'm not a lawyer. So I'm going to ultimately bring in those people to sign off or to understand, but I could get us majority of the way there. I could, and that's cost savings, that's negotiation, that's speed. So if you had a lawyer an accountant, again, depending on these, you know, these various people, the more, you know, the faster you'll go, the more control you'll have on your ultimately your baby. So don't be afraid of getting your hands dirty and learning the nitty gritty stuff that is might make you feel uncomfortable. I always hated accounting. I always hated all this intimidating stuff, but now it's one of my favorite things to do just because, you know, I know that again, I, I have more control in that way. Yep. I love that, man. Well, Aristotle, I want to be respectful of time. Just when it comes to everything you're building now, I know on social media, you, you're consistently posting on there. Where can everyone stay up to date with everything you have going on with Philo and everything else happening? Yeah, so you could find me at uh, uh, A is an Apple, L-O-U, M is a Mark, I-S on Instagram. It's pretty much the same on every other platform. And one thing I will note to you, and it's very important for your generation as well, um, not that I'll date myself, but is that entrepreneurship is a community sport. So get to know your community. You know, those are going to be your ranting, raving fans. And like I said, it, it's not us. It's, it's not an I sport. It's a we sport. So I think with that in mind, no matter where you are, whether you're in Iowa, Idaho, Arizona, um, get to know your locals, get to know your neighborhood and build that coalition to, to grow. Yep. Well, that being said, Aristotle, I want to say thank you so much. And everyone tuning in, make sure you go follow Aristotle on Instagram. I'll link down everything below. And thanks so much for coming to the show. Thank you, brother. Pleasure.